Ah, welcome, Felicia. What's going on? Don't you realise how dangerous it is to intercept a Zoom call? Oh, come on, Felicia, not with our techniques. We podcasters transcended such simple VoIP software where the internet was less than half its present size. I won't do it. Whatever it is, I refuse. Digressions. Digressions? Tell me more. We foresee a time when it will have outlasted all other podcasts and become the dominant media on the internet. That's possible. Tell on. We'd like you to return to episode 6 at a point in time before the duration evolved. Do you mean avert its creation? Or affect its conversational development so that it evolved into a less extensive running time. All right. Just one more time. You'll do it? Yes. If you'll let me have the space-time coordinates... I'll set the recording for episode six. There's no need for that, Felicia. Yeah. You're here. This is episode six. Relative Digressions. This is episode six. I'm Renner. I'm Felicia. And today we're discussing Genesis of the Daleks, which is a Tom Baker story, which in some sense needs no introduction, because I think it's probably, I think, one of the most famous Doctor Who stories that exists. Would you say that's fair? Amongst fandom, this is probably the most famous Doctor Who story. There's there's often interesting discussions about what the most famous Doctor Who story is amongst non-fans, and the general consensus is it's actually the Green Death. This is a strange phenomenon. Nobody can explain, but everybody just knows it as the one with the maggots. If you speak to people, certainly if they were alive in the 70s and you ask them about Doctor Who, they'll go, oh, I remember the one with the maggots. And I tested this on my parents and it's true. And and in fact, the one with the maggots was the first episode I saw. Fascinating. I mean, I wonder what, like, it's not going to be true of people who have mainly watched Modern Who. Yeah, so that that's obviously going to be changing now. Yeah, I'm just sort of wondering what people who are sort of passive fans of Doctor Who. So on my Facebook this week, I basically said to people, how do you feel about Doctor Who sort of in general? And how do you feel about like the specific current iteration of Doctor Who? So I was sort of interested in what people thought. Lots of people who stopped watching after Tenant. Lots of people for whom the 11th Doctor is unfamiliar, which I thought was fascinating. A lot of people have stopped watching after 11. Yeah, there are like quite a lot of people who didn't watch Eccleston either and stopped after Tennant and and David Tennant was Doctor Who and is Doctor Who and that's all that is Doctor Who for them. Right, which is fascinating. I mean, I'm not a fan of all of Stephen Moffat's work, although I think over time I've sort of gained a better perspective on the limitations of the show in general, I suppose. Certainly also you've got this thing where amongst enfranchised fans, Capaldi is one of the most Doctory Doctors that ever doctored. Yep. And amongst casual viewers, he didn't feel like Doctor Who at all to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's strange to me because, yeah, absolutely he did. But So this is relevant because, like I say, the one with the maggots is what Doctor Who evoked in casual people. And in fans, if you like, what's the most memorable, most well-known Doctor Who story? It was Genesis of the Daleks. And it's n- probably not anymore. So it's interesting. So going back to the, the my, my Facebook experiment, there's, there's someone who thought Blink was the best Doctor Who episode ever, but hadn't heard of Midnight. Hmm. I I could see Blink being the 
the new maggots maggots i actually really think it is i think if people realized it was good and was regarded as good and as a there's sort of a phenomenal way people realize an episode is good they get they, they make sure they see it but also it, it's very standalone i mean i think midnight is brilliant obviously but i think it probably works even better in the context of the season in which it sits and things it says about doctor who as a character and the mythos and so forth yeah and it's interesting that you mention being about the show's mythos because that that's something i'm definitely going to come back to in regard to genesis so there, there are in a sense almost sort of two genesis of the daleks there's the actual story and there's the story as it exists in people's minds who might not have seen it for a long time like me i last watched it 15 years ago before we revisited it or who've never seen it like you so what was this story before you watched it because it already existed for you the doctor goes back in time to try to stop the daleks existing but he decides not to and leaves knowing that the daleks have started to exist but not wanting to live with the genocide and i was aware that it had featured davros heavily possibly for the first time did you know the really famous the two really famous speeches i knew the two wires touched together speech i think that's it uh, what's the other famous speech? Uh, when the doctor's asking Davros about if he had a virus in his lab and would he release it. Oh, yes. No, I... I so I, I think I was... Familiar enough when I saw it, I was like, oh, it's this bit. I don't think it would have come to mind. Davros, if you had created a virus in your laboratory, something contagious and infectious that killed on contact, a virus that would destroy all other forms of life, would you allow its use? It is an interesting conjecture. Would you do it? The only living thing. A microscopic organism. Reigning supreme. A fascinating idea. But would you do it? Yes. Yes. To hold in my hand a capsule that contains such power. To know that life and death on such a scale was... My choice, to know that the tiny pressure on my thumb, enough to break the glass, would end everything. Yes, I would do it. That power would set me up above the gods. And through the Daleks, I shall have that power. Because I think, in a sense, those two speeches are genesis of the Daleks for a lot of people. Yes. And actually, one thing that I'll get into once we discuss it more is that there's a lot more to it than that. Yes. Um, like, can we just do a little positive history of the Daleks? So uh, can I just yeah. talk you through as I understand it, which is, so the Daleks, of course, the first appeared in like the, the first story. Second, second story. story. And it's the Daleks and the Thals. And this is the one that gets remade into the first Peter Cushing movie, essentially. Yeah. Then later the Daleks invade Earth. Which is incidentally brilliant, right? You've done the Daleks. They went down a storm. Everyone's loved them. You're going to do a sequel, which is like the first time the Doctor Who's ever done a sequel. What do you do with the Daleks to make them even more exciting? You shoot them on Earth in location footage on Earth. Yeah, going along Westminster Bridge. Superb. Um, and then there's a bunch of miscellaneous Dalek episodes with very shows tumor, essentially generic Dalek stories. No, 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 that's unfair. I mean, for a start, just like out of the sheer number of them, they can't all be bad. Okay, I mean, I didn't say they were bad, but like, do they do anything interesting with the sort of the, what, what a Dalek is or the mythos of Daleks or... Yes. Okay, cool. So... 
before Genesis the Daleks, where are the Daleks in terms of the mythos of the show, if you see what I mean? Okay, so before Genesis the Daleks, we've already had nine Dalek stories. Nine Dalek stories, okay. Cool. Depending if you count Mission to Unknown as separate from Dalek's <laughs> Master Plan, which would make it ten. Which is not a discussion we'll get into in this episode. And also, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not counting Frontier in space because they only appear for 30 seconds. Okay, cool. So the Daleks, they first appear in the second ever Doctor Who story. They are There's only a handful of them. They are introduced as the remnants of a terrible nuclear war. At first, they portray themselves as victims. They are still at war with the Thals. The Thals have become a sort of tribal jungle-dwelling people. Mm -hmm. They are pacifists, avowed pacifists, because of their history about this terrible war and what have you. The Daleks, meanwhile, are trapped in their city and cut off from everyone, and they are like the last surviving remnant of a race. The Doctor and Co. run into them and defeat them by convincing the Thals that sometimes you have to fight. So even in this first story, there is the same kind of moral dilemma that Genesis is tapping into. Like a huge part of the Daleks is that the TARDIS crew have to convince the Thals that they need to fight. Right, that makes sense. So the, the, the story goes bonkers popular and... So well, no one could have ever predicted that the second ever Doctor Who story made changes the entire course of the show. And so they make a sequel to it where they come and they attack Earth. And this is off the bat, like, second ever Dalek story, and we're going big. Location shooting, armies of Daleks, flying saucers, monstrous creatures that they've tamed, robotized humans. Instantly, we've jumped from a tiny remnant in a city to an empire with... Is it explained how or why that's the case? This is earlier than the Daleks from the Daleks' point of view. Oh, that's interesting. So do the Daleks at any point remember the Doctor? No, because again, this is supposed to be before the Daleks. Yes, right. But I mean, presumably there they, there starts to be a point where the Daleks encounter the Doctor and are, and are like, oh, it's the Doctor. And that is the next story, The Chase. Right, cool. The Chase is about the Daleks deliberately pursuing the Doctor because they now know him to be a threat to the Daleks. And they use time travel in that. And this is when the Daleks first show that they have the ability for time travel. Following on from that, you get the Daleks' master plan. And if the Dalek invasion of Earth was the, like, oh, Daleks can be big, this was like, oh, the Daleks can be a showstopper. They can be the event of a season. Then we get to the second Doctor era. And when you you're asking about, like, do any of them do interesting things with the Daleks, mm -hmm. they only appear twice in the second Doctor era, but they are two stories that are quite famous for what they do with the Daleks. Mm -hmm. The power of the Daleks is the first story, and we will see this trope again subsequently several times, where the Daleks portray themselves as subservient and helpers and friendly. Oh, like like the Churchill episode. Right, and in fact there is a, um, a direct reference to Power of the Daleks in Victory of the Daleks. And, and so this will come back again and again, the idea that the Daleks are often very duplicitous and often you get this thing of the Doctor is trying to convince people what the Daleks really are and the Daleks are pretending to be something else. Which is, of course, interesting in the context of Genesis, where essentially they do that, but they do it to Davros. Yeah. So Evil of the Daleks introduces the idea of the Emperor and a Dalek Empire, mm -hmm. and this story does the thing of contrasting Daleks and humans. It introduces the human factor and the Dalek factor. 
it's fascinating this because do these feel like so many things that the modern show that I'm familiar with has explored and you realise how far back these kind of tropes go. Yeah, yeah, like the Dalek stuff is all baked in. I guess the, the maybe the most interesting thing that has been done with Daleks in the new series is the cult of Scarrow and the idea that they had imagination and that that leads to them one by one turning into good guys. Yes. But even that, evil of the Daleks, is prefiguring it because the Emperor's plan is to infect humanity with the Dalek factor, which we will see again and again, and this question of what's the intrinsic quality of a human and the intrinsic quality of a Dalek that set them apart. And at the end, the Doctor defeats them by infecting the Daleks with the human factor. Which is interesting, because again, this will appear in Genesis. Javos invents the Dalek factor, and that's the thing he's added to the Carlo mutants to make them Daleks. Yeah, almost explicitly, yeah. Silence! The human factor showed us what the Dalek factor was! What? Look, what does that mean? Without knowing... You have shown the Daleks what their own strength is. Then you get Day of the Daleks. It's like the first properly... I'm going to say it. It's the first properly timey-wimey Dalek story. Uh-huh. It's not doing anything new with the Daleks per se, but it's a new kind of story for the Daleks. Sure. It's also the story where Unit meet the Daleks for the first time. Planet of the Daleks prefiguring Genesis in a similar way that, you know, you talk a lot about Nazis in World War One and World War Two. Planet of the Daleks is the Vietnam War in space. But the Viet Cong are the Daleks? No, the Viet Cong are the Thals. Oh, in- right. Okay. That's interesting. We'll do an episode on Planet of the Daleks because it's very interesting. Death to the Daleks is a story where their presence is bigger than their actual substance in the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And then we get to Genesis. We get to Genesis. Okay, cool. But it's, it's interesting looking at... Well, in fact, there, there, isn't mu- there isn't much left after that. Every appearance after that has Davros in it, and there's only four of Yeah, I was just looking. Yeah, so it's funny. Everyone thinks the Daleks are really big, but actually... They are up until Genesis, and then after that, the show just dwells in Genesis' shadow. Except in the new series, where they are once again a mainstay. Oh, yeah, yes, once, once the series comes back. But certainly for the rest of the classic series, after Genesis, each Doctor just had one story that progressed the story of Davros, and that was it. And Destiny is to be forgotten, do you think? Uh, well, you can't forget it because it's a vital part of the story. It's just not very good. Right, OK. But so the Daleks have been properly explored as a concept by now. In fact, more explanation has gone on up until now than will go on in the future. You almost get the sense that if Genesis was the last ever Dalek episode, that would have been fine. Yeah. Which is a funny way to put it, but do you see what I mean? If the story of the Daleks had just been told completely backwards. Yeah, it, it would work. It would it would absolutely work. Although the only thing you wouldn't get is that you would never see the fallout of the conflict becoming personal for the Doctor. No, indeed. Uh, and there were good reasons why that didn't happen. And, and, and that has in, in time become the most important thing in that dynamic. I think it's a good time to sort of summarise the plot of the episode. Yeah, for the two people that don't know what Genesis of the Daleks is about. Or, or indeed for the people who have forgotten what happened in Genesis of the Daleks, which I suspect is rather larger. So, what happened in Genesis of the Daleks? At the start, the Doctor is sent back in time by the Time Lords to Scarrow to Hello, I'm Felicia. And I've come back in time from the future when I am editing this podcast because when Renner and I gave our potted summary of Genesis of the Daleks, it somehow took us 40 minutes 
which is the length of the episode. So, to spare my having to edit that, and your having to listen to it, I've come back from the future to give you a quick account of the story to Genesis of the Daleks in a little under three minutes. At the beginning, the Doctor and companions are plucked from time and sent by a Time Lord to the birth of the Daleks to prevent or subvert it. There they get caught in an endless war between the Thals and the Kaleds, and in classic Doctor Who fashion, they're separated and captured. The Doctor and Harry meet Davros, a Kaled scientist who has created the Mark III travel machine. But as we know it, this is a Dalek, and Davros is clearly using the war to drive his private obsession of creating a supreme being. Davros plays off both sides in the war, eliminating his foes, whilst the TARDIS crew bounce between the factions, and eventually all that remains is Davros, those loyal to him, a small core of Thals and Resistance, and the Daleks. The Doctor gets his chance, but is unable to bring an end to the Daleks. Unfortunately for him, his presence here has had a massive impact upon Davros, because Davros did not believe there was life beyond Scarrow, and now the Doctor has in fact told him that he is a space and time traveller, and that the Daleks are a threat to the universe. In a brilliant twist, however, the Daleks, in line with their creation as the supreme beings, overthrow Davros, because he's not a Dalek. The Doctor is forced to leave Scarrow in the hands of the Daleks, although he chooses to believe that one day, from their great evil, some good may arise. Meanwhile, the remaining Thals succeed in blowing up the bunker where Davros is housed, but the Daleks are not dead, and entombed, they proclaim in a speech that breaks the fourth wall, that they will grow stronger, they will rebuild, and that one day they will emerge to become the supreme beings in the universe. And that's about it. That is the plot of Genesis of the Daleks in considerably less than 40 minutes, and having now spared us all from the monstrous podcast that had threatened to overwhelm us, I will go on my way, safe in the knowledge that the universe is safe once again, and return you to the episode. quite oddly sort of soft focus romanticized that he says out of their evil must come something good you don't seem too disappointed we failed haven't we failed no not really you see i know that although the daleks will create havoc and destruction for millions of years i know also that out of their evil must come something good so what did I think of the episode? I don't think I liked it. You told me this once you'd finished watching this, and I didn't press you for facts, because I was like, I, I want to hear this on the... But I just... Because um, I watched it, and I was like, I remember this being great, but it's been 15 years. Is this actually going to be terrible? And certainly in episode two, I was like, Terry Nation, this is just 25 minutes of exposition. This is awful. What are you doing, Terry? And then it got to the end, and I was like, oh, like, wow, those final episodes, like, 
damn, that holds up. And then you were just like, I didn't like it. Yeah, so let me let me unpack that a bit. So part of my fear here is that my, that reaction is shaped by the fact of knowing that I should like it. And actually, this discussion we've just had, recapping the episode, has actually made me reflect slightly. I think maybe I liked it slightly more. As Jen for the Daleks becomes a thing I'm now remembering, I like it more. <laughs> I think I, I, I was just quite bored in that middle third bit you've just mentioned. And that, I think, put a, a scar on thing that happened later. But also, so the moments that are good are amazing. The speeches, the writing there, oh, fantastic, really great. However, I don't like the fact that actually, for all that I've been told this episode was about the Doctor struggling with the difficult decision about whether to commit genocide or not, he does not make that decision. And actually, we have the famous speech where he said he can't do it, and then he's taken away from that. So he's sort of relieved of needing to make the choice. And then later, he decides to do it, because I, I had someone talked about this episode recently and go, like, this is the episode where the Doctor decides not to commit genocide. I'm like, no. This is the episode where the Doctor does decide to commit genocide. Yeah, exactly. But what people, what someone I know who is a big fan of the show was like, this is the episode where the doc- Doctor turns out to be a better person who won't commit genocide. I'm like, no, that is not what happened in this episode. The Doctor decides to commit genocide, but then he doesn't actually do it. A Dalek runs out. Like, if it was the Doctor, to touching those wires together and doing it, I think the episode will be so much stronger. So I discussed this, I, when I re-watched this, I watched it with a couple of other people, and just before that moment, I said, here is either one of the great ironic scenes or a massive cop-out, depending on who you are. And they were both like, I think that's quite good. I think it preserves the ambiguity of you can't be sure whether the Doctor would have done it or not. And I was like, I think it's a cop-out. But I do kind of like the irony of the Dalek being the one that ends yeah, up. Yeah, I, I, I just think it's a cop out for me, and it's a cop out that, that that just casts a dark shadow. I don't think I want the Doctor to commit genocide. I just resent that the dichotomy and the dilemma is set up. I think that the moment is ninety-five percent there and five percent a wobble that means it doesn't quite have the strength of its convictions. But it reminds me of a much, much worse but comparable scene which is when the Doctor decides that he has to kill Missy and then the cyber brig does it for him. Right. Uh, <laughs> a scene I had forgotten. Oh, I, I'm sorry for reminding you about the cyber brig, by the way. <laughs> My apologies. Oh, God. Um, yes, uh, not one of Doctor's greatest moments. It almost is when Missy's like, I've won, and the Doctor's like, I know, and, and he's, he's going to kill her. And it's like, oh, my God. It's a flaw the Doctor who has in your in that it wants a morally complicated character, but also Doctor has to be a goodie. I guess when I say I didn't like the episode, I just meant that, like, did I objectively enjoy watching this? Well, this is what I was getting at when we talked about it as the next thing we were going to watch, and I said it was all going to be about the giant clam. Right. Although I quite like the giant clam, I have to say. No issues with the clam. The clam can stay. Um, I know you, you don't have high opinions of the clam. I like the clam. I, I mean, I love the clam because it's so incredibly Doctor Who. Yeah. But it is just, let's stick a monster in a tunnel. And okay, it, it forwards the plot a tiny bit because it shows that Davros has done genetic experiments. Yeah. But it's so pointless and so trivial and it's defeated by essentially hopping over it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, then, and then they come back through the tunnel and it's like Hobbit storytelling. Oh, yes, we've had one giant clam, but what about second giant clam? <laughs> and they just hop over it again. <laughs> They're like, ah, this is a bit of the clam. This is a story that began in the first 10 minutes with the Doctor having stepped on a live landmine and Harry having to wedge it with stones to prevent it going off in their faces and just viscerally killing them. And now they're hopping over giant clams. 
in fairness, that mind sequence is proper good. Yeah, no, like, it's, that's what I mean. Like, that first episode is so tense and visceral and gritty, and then they're hopping over these giant clams. I just think the action sequence has been... The action is so bad. It, it, it's so bad, and you could do without it, and I really don't like the time ring. Let's, let's take these one by one. Well, they're related, but go on. So the action sequences, like, all these fight scenes, it's like, they've got guns, and then, like, they just kind of shove each other, and they win the fight. And the only explanation is they've been fighting for thousands and thousands of years because they are completely incompetent at fighting. Which does actually make sense, because over time your combat knowledge drops off. So like they're carrying these guns and they fundamentally don't know how to use them. Right, exactly. So the time ring. Yeah, there is a MacGuffin that's given to the Doctor by the Time Lord that he meets at the very start, which is a time ring, which is a thing that they will need to leave this time at the end, which gets lost in one of the scuffles. The moment where the time ring flies off, just, you know they're not going to get stuck. It, it just doesn't... It doesn't quite ring true, and it just feels like the time ring is doing a lot of work to essentially contrive the plot in the right way. And obviously that always happens in Doctor Who to some degree, but it just felt really jarring. I mean, maybe one of the reasons I didn't like the episode was because the good bits are so good. I know that sounds really weird, but what I mean is the good bits are so good that when the rest of it is just sort of humdingering along, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, but we've seen this with the TARDIS key even in modern Who. No, no, certainly. I, I know it's not. I know it's a thing that Who does, I, and I think you can do it better or worse. I, I don't always mind it so much. As I say, I just found it very clumsy. Like I wouldn't recommend this episode to someone who wanted to watch good Doctor Who. Hmm. It is an episode that, if you're a Doctor Who fan, I would recommend watching absolutely. And there, there are really good bits in this, and you should go and watch it. But let's say I got someone and I wanted to convince them classic Doctor Who was good. I wouldn't show them this. And I'd not try to make a really big point by saying I didn't enjoy it. I just can't make myself say I enjoyed it if I didn't. Yeah, yeah. For me, like, the weak part is all episode two and three, where yeah. I feel like, oh, this is Terry Nation working out his Terry Nation gremlins so that he can write the second half of this story. I, I absolutely agree. I think maybe it's just that, that that weak middle really affected it more for me. Or maybe just in terms of how I consume media or how I was consuming this. That's how I watched it over a couple of sittings, just because of when I could watch it. Part of this is obviously I've seen every episode of Doctor Who. Yep. Part two and part three are standard Doctor Who as opposed to bad Doctor Who. Well, actually, I would say episode two. Like episode two is just wall to wall exposition with no character in it. Like episode two is objectively bad, but episode three faffing around with the foul rocket is just middle of the road. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. And it does have, you know, every moment Davros is on screen is great, even in those episodes. Yeah, uh, I have to say, utter, utter time for Davros himself. Oh, so cool. And also Nida, like, I love Peter Miles. I love Nida. Is the person who does Davros's voice the same person who does the Dalek voice? No. The person who does Davros in this is Michael Wisher, often considered to be the best Davros, but he would never come back. In Destiny, it's David Goodison, and then from then on for the classic series, it was Terry Malloy before Julian Bleach took over for the new series. He's cool. I like it. I love how quiet and calm he is, how clearly good at manipulation he is. Yep. I love when he's talking to NIDA, and they are so businesslike and matter-of-fact, and I love how when he slips into his god complex and sounds like a Dalek, that that is such a rare moment that is in such contrast to the way he is at all other times. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He is sold to me as a believable villain, which is weird because in some ways he's like your classic mad scientist megalomaniac. He's just really well-defined. Yeah. He's really well-performed. The acting is good and that helps a lot. He makes sense as a creator of the Daleks, but also they have given him these notes of a personality that is very un-Dalek in his ability to understand and manipulate other people and his his resolute calmness and patience and and his double act with nida is just sublime they are like my favorite like one true pair i i, I i'm gonna assume you don't mean that in like a oh, okay, like you t- tell me that nida doesn't want to get davros out of that travel machine i, I there's certainly a there's certainly some stuff going on there i think People just underestimate NIDA. And part of, part of it's a constraint of the sets that their conspiracies essentially happen whispering behind their hands on the other side of a room from NIDA, which is a bit silly. Yeah. But, like, when he does the sting to get them... Yeah, that is cool. And he's, like, he perfectly sells that he might actually be turning on Davros. Yeah. And then when you realise that he hasn't, you understand that there is nothing Davros could do that would turn NIDA against him. Yes, absolutely. He's just... He's a, he's a true believer. Yeah, exactly. What's interesting about NIDA is that he is this true believer, this proper ideologue. And in a story about Khaled's as Nazi allegories, it's interesting that the one really true ideologue is not a follower of the Khaled ideology, but Davros's perversion of the orthodoxy. Yes, but actually, let's talk a bit about the political analogy. This is what I thought that you didn't like. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, it's not perfect, but it didn't bother me. So basically, neither to me looks essentially like Himmler. That, to me, is who they're modelling him off. It's very blunt. I mean, it's not very blunt that he's specifically Himmler, although he clearly is. Is Yeah. And as I say, I think there are some questionable decisions about the fact that, like, the wider military, I feel it falls a little into the so-called good Wehrmacht which is this idea that somehow the German army during World War II were more innocent than the Nazis, which is not true at all, and they were complicit in the Holocaust. Quite, but I'm about to say something bold and controversial. Go on. I think it definitely does. If you're reading the show as an allegory, but I think this is not a story about Nazis. Um, okay. <laughs> you, you can unpack that more, but it is unquestionably true that they are modelling this for Nazis. I think you have to think about when this was made, like how our view of the Wehrmacht and the Third Reich has changed over time. Like, I, I, I don't know enough about that to specifically say, but like, I think it probably says something about how Nazi Germany and, and, and the war was being viewed at the time. You can explain what you mean when you say it's not a story about Nazis, and I think I probably, I think I might well agree, but it's absolutely true that this story exists in the context of the 70s and the memory of World War II and the, and the beginnings of memories of memories about it. Yes. Interestingly, the, like, the, most, the most blatant part of the allegory is that iron cross on Nida's tunic, which was actually a thing that Peter Miles brought, and then the director made him take it off when he spotted it. So, yes. I, I mean, for me, actually, it's the um, icon at the lapels that is the most, like, this is the Nazis. I actually thought it reminded me a lot, and I had to look at when this was made, because the other thing this episode completely reminded me of is Star Wars. Yes, and in fact, Star Wars is a touchstone in my This Is Not A Story About Nazis explanation. Go on. So people have talked about their allegory for the Nazis, and it's all about Nazism, and yes, that is 
definitely there, but it is being borrowed, not unpacked. It is blunt and obvious, but it is shallow. This is not actually a story about the real world in the way that The Mutants is. The Mutants is not a story about space lobsters and future human empires. It's a story about real-world modern colonialism. This is not a story about real-world Nazism. It's a story about mutant space blobs. Yes, I agree. And the symbology, again, my comparison was Star Wars. It's really not much more about Nazism than the Empire is in Star Wars. No, I completely agree. When I say they're Nazi, I mean... What is being done here is borrowing an aesthetic and a sense, and they're using these things as shorthands. Exactly. But it's not trying to do analysis of Nazism as it actually existed. And indeed, if you dig into the story, I mean, like, so the Carlos and the Thals, are they different? Are they the same species or not? Like, if they're not the same species, then this is weird because they really are distinct. Whereas the whole point of Nazism and the reason Nazism fell down is that people aren't even distinct in that way. It's a thing that happens sometimes in um, fantasy stuff, actually. Like the way in which different species are treated in D&D, for instance, and they're kind of pseudo-racialized, but sort of not. Yeah. And it's messy and bad. And I think this is happening here to a degree. I agree that it's sloppy, but the significance is, are they being prejudiced against based on traits that they don't actually possess? Right. So let me, let me just be clear. So the difference between Nazi ideology and the Carlyle ideology is... There really is a distinction between you and the enemy. Clearly, I think both sides are wrong to want to wage a war of extermination. But actually, that's where the kind of the analogy breaks down. It's where I think their kind of lazy use of the, sort of the aesthetic sort of... Like, if you unpack it, it's just weird. I don't think I can say, like, oh, it's definitely problematic. But just the more I think about it, the less it actually makes any sense. This is what I meant about it's not a story about Nazis. Not even just that it doesn't want to talk about it. And what I'll get on into a bit is that what it wants to talk about is not the real world, but very much the world of Doctor Who. This is like the first story where Doctor Who becomes reflexive. But also, when I say it's not about Nazis, it's because what the coward believe is not a Nazi ideology. No, indeed. Indeed, it's not really clear what they believe. Yeah, so one of the weird, weird parts of this story is that there is no character in the story who acts as an unambiguous representative of the actual coward orthodoxy. Yes, we don't really know what the Carlyle orthodoxy is, other than the, re- the survival of the Carlyle. They want to survive, but we hear that having realised they can't survive by killing the Thals, they're trying to find a way to force a peace. So they don't want to wipe out the Thals. No, exactly. And we, there isn't actually any suggestion, overt suggestion. There's obviously lots of implicit suggestion from the imagery and the kind of words used, but there isn't any explicit suggestion that they believe in supremacy. They actually don't know why they're fighting the war. Right, and they know they're going to mutate, and they don't think that's particularly good, but they also say it is inevitable. And and Davros also doesn't believe that the cowards are a supreme race. Because he's creating... Quite explicitly, he's creating a supreme race by changing them intentionally. Right, yeah. I just think I just think it's, it's incoherent and it implies some weird and questionable stuff. Well, it's not incoherent if you stop thinking about the borrowed Nazi imagery and just take it in its own context. It's perfectly coherent. It's just that it doesn't actually match up with all the borrowed iconography that's been used. Oh, yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, my point is the choice to borrow the aesthetic. Well, that's that's grandfathered in to an extent. Indeed, but they really could double down on it here. 
And and the Thals, on the other hand, are incoherent, even within the context of the story. Yeah, like we mentioned that maybe in some other stuff they're kind of coded as communists, but not really here. They're just sort of generic people with a bunker. Just also that the Thals are introduced as being just as bad as the Coed and antagonists and being truly horrible to Sarah... Not even just that they're forcing the prisoners to work on this radioactive stuff without protection, but that they, at one point, one of the guards, like, dangles Severin and threatens to just drop him to his death. And then, after the Coward Dome is destroyed and the Doctor meets Betan, suddenly the Thals transition back into their familiar role as noble pacifists. Well, except not really pacifists, but yes. Um, It's just weird, isn't it? Yeah. The Nazi stuff doesn't make sense here. It's not a story about that. It, that, in fact, is the thing that fits in the least well. Yeah, it's um, it's just odd, you know. Um, sorry, I'm 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 kind of lost for words. Think about this. I think the Daleks are much better when they're omniscient, when they have the Dalek ideology, which is clearly similar to other exterminationist ideologies that exist maybe in the world, but are is its own thing. It is. It's a. It's a case of legacy. Yeah. Because because this is a story about Doctor Who's own mythology and own legacy, it grandfathers in what Terry Nation did with the Daleks previously, which was a more simplistic, less heavy-handed Nazi references. And now everybody knows, oh, Daleks have a Nazi comparison. So when he's like doing this story that's explicitly about the mythology, he's like, oh, I've got to push that there are, there is a Nazi comparison here. Yeah, I mean, they didn't need, even if it's a legacy, they didn't need to dress everyone up in bargain basement, basement SS costumes. Because this is the thing, is like previously, we've never seen a Khaled anyway. So And Daleks don't, don't wear a Nazi uniform, they're Daleks. Right, precisely. So it's like, you didn't need to the put a lightning bolt around their dark black collars and their, you know, Hugo Boss-designed leather coats. I mean, to an extent, you have to consider that some things, like costuming like that, all of sort of space opera ended up influenced by the Nazis for decades. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that might have, like, even if he wasn't specifically mining a Nazi parallel, you might have got stuff like that, but you wouldn't have got as much of this misfitted Nazi set dressing as you did. I think you're right. And it is very space opera, actually. And again, Star Wars. It's very Star Wars. There's a bit in the, there's some of the corridor scenes. Literally just felt some like some bits out of the New Hope. Yeah. I mean, I mean, neither is clearly Vader and da- and Davros is the Emperor. You know, you could pre- pretty much rework Genesis of the Daleks as a Star Wars story. I think. Yeah. I mean, imagine a Star Wars film where a general in the, in fact, in fact, in fact, the Daleks are. Fittingly, the Daleks are Peter Cushing, the military general who thinks that the Emperor and Davros's weird offshoot ideology doesn't fit in with what the Empire is doing and wants to overthrow them. So, uh, hang on, Peter Cushing is the Daleks, you mean? Yeah. Because he overthrows the Emperor? So, Peter Cushing in Star Wars plays Grand Moff Tarkin. He does, but he doesn't overthrow He He gets killed. He gets killed because he disagrees with what Vader is doing. Because Vader is believes in the Sith and Tarkin thinks that's nonsense. And he is the imperial orthodoxy. He is like the Empire of Supreme, military might, blah, blah, blah. This Sith stuff is, is, is not what we're about. And he gets killed because of believing that. So in that respect, like it, it would be as if Davros 
won over the Daleks at the end. So actually, I think Tarkin is much more analogous to the people who tried to betray, the, the people who argued to Davros that he should make a compromise. No, 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 because Tar- Tarkin does not want to compromise. Tarkin objectively just hates Vader and wants him gone. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna relitigate Star Wars. I'm just looking at Tarkin now. I mean, as you say, it's just the aesthetic everyone was doing. Um, I have a question actually, which is the start of this story. Yes. What was? The, where is it coming from in the previous episode? Like, do they disappear with the TARDIS? Where do we think the TARDIS is? Uh, it, it, it doesn't add a great deal of context to the story, but um, Tom Baker's first season is a, a sort of loosely continuous plot arc. So um, Genesis is almost sort of intrinsically like a record scratch. We've yanked you out of this continuous story in one sort of place and time. And it's no coincidence that that place and time has become embedded in Doctor Who because it was built around in a whole season. Genesis is the one story that doesn't fit into that. But what it does do is build on the larger arc of the Doctor, the Daleks, these things that have emerged organically. And this is where the show becomes reflexive. So what's your big thesis about Genesis then? So this is, and it's funny because, you know, in a diegetic sense, we talk about this being where the time war begins. Mm -hmm. I would say that in a non-diegetic sense, this is where modern Doctor Who begins. Not that nothing before this parallels anything in modern Doctor Who, but if you identify what is at the core of what modern Doctor Who is doing and trace those threads back... Yes, things pop up earlier than this, all over the place, loads of comparisons, we've already drawn some, but then they go away again, what have you. Whereas this is where things are created that then are continuous threads that never go away again and run all the way through into modern Doctor Who, because this is where the show becomes properly reflexive and starts to have episodes about its own mythology. Mm, right, yeah. This story doesn't make sense if the Daleks aren't important in a wider context. Like, you can make up a new alien called the Frobulons and say that they're the greatest threat to the universe, but you, that, that doesn't have the impact. This story's impact only exists because the Daleks are something bigger than what they are in the scripts. They have a life beyond the show. Like, why does this? Why does Genesis start with the Time Lords deciding that the Daleks might one day be a threat to the whole universe that has to be averted? Why isn't it the Ice Warriors? Uh-huh. Fundamentally, it would never have been the Ice Warriors. You would never have written that about the Ice Warriors. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It looks back at itself, and instead of trying to say something is important, it takes the things that have become important and does a story about that importance. Yeah. And that reflexivity then never goes away. Mm. Gallifrey starts to appear more and more and more, the Doctor becoming the president of the Time Lords. So the, the, the Time Lord who appears here, how much have we seen the Time Lords previously to this? Actual Time Lords? I mean, so the Pertwee era, they pop up in and out. A lot of the time they're sort of like in the mutants and off-screen presence. Obviously, we saw them put the second Doctor on trial at the end of his era. Yep. Uh, notably, we have done one big Gallifrey, Time Lord, Lollapalooza, which was the three Doctors right. with Omega and what have you. Nice. But, you know, from this point onwards, we'll, we'll go back to Gallifrey more and more and more. Time Lords will show up more and more. The Doctor becomes personally more entangled. You're going to get 
Remembrance of the Daleks down the line and Silver Nemesis. You're going to get more recurring characters, more plot arcs. Fundamentally, the show has become reflexive here. It has started to go, this is a machine that generates mythology and we can tell stories that only work because that mythology is there that you couldn't just tell in a vacuum. And this will eventually lead to things like the Time War. And the general ethos of the Moffat era, which is more driven by non-diegetic shocks, I would say, uh-huh. than by internal dramatic context. Yeah, most of the drama of the episode is, in fact, sort of the wider context in which these events are happening. Is, is, is that what you're saying? It's, I mean, like, like, the key point here is that reflexivity. Yep. It's writing a story that you would only write because you've looked at Doctor Who as a phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing, though, is that whilst I say that this is where modern Doctor Who begins, this story is not like a modern Doctor Who story. It isn't modern in how it feels. Mm -hmm. And the show, despite being clearly heavily influenced by it, has never actually duplicated it, whilst the extended universe and even the classic series would duplicate it a lot. The closest comparison is something like Rise of the Cybermen, But RTD was reintroducing things and they were very contextualised as reintroductions, so they never had that same feeling. Moffat does a sort of Genesis of the Daleks thing for his companions. Delving back into companion origins is what Moffat likes doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've never had something quite like this. You could maybe have it for the Ood. You've got a bit of it in Planet of the Ood. But despite being a story that has cast a shadow that has never gone away and clearly influencing all kinds of things, it doesn't itself feel like a story that you would see in the modern era. I can think of another example. Mm-hmm. When has Doctor Who uncovered a previously unexamined history about the origins of a people central to the mythos of the show? The last two episodes of Jodie Wicks of the last season. But, but that is not actually anything like Genesis of the Daleks. As a e- form of episode, it's not alike. What is the form that would... Like, what's the form here that, like, that hasn't been done? Just, you know, when we watched The Awakening, and we were like, oh, this is just clearly very modern, you could just drop this... I mean, do you disagree? But you can't say that about Genesis. No, I, I'm not sure I agree. I, I think you could. Oh, okay. Okay. At least I'm struggling to really rock exactly what it is for you that doesn't quite... Because actually, I think you're right. The Rise of the Cybermen owes a massive debt to it. But but Rise of the Cybermen is trying to be Genesis in modern Doctor Who. And whilst I quite like that two-parter, I think all of the places it doesn't work are the places where it's trying to be Genesis, and all of the places it does work are where it's doing something that isn't Genesis. Sure, but but I, I will accept that maybe modern Who has not successfully done Genesis. Sure. But it's really hard to go back to the same place again. And actually, almost, I'm, I'm happy if we don't resolve the discussion here, because I think it's actually something I will begin to appreciate more as I see more classic Who. Yeah, like the stories that most closely tie into Genesis tie into it not as stories, but as wider beats. So it's influenced the structure of seasons more than the structure of individual stories, I would say. Interesting. For example, Christopher Eccleston the reveal of killing the Time Lords to end the Time War, something like that. That isn't the plot of an episode. 
Sure. Actually, that really nicely dovetails into my next question, which is, in modern Who, if you were going to do a truly new revolutionary Dalek episode, what do you think you would do? Oh, wait, how, how long have you got? I have a folder. Give me a some Doctor Who pictures for modern Who that you're willing to actually have on the air. Don't give us your one you're actually going to pitch to Big Finish. First of all, like, if you assume that you're like, oh, what would you do in Jodie's next season? That's a different question to like, just in a vacuum. Okay, so imagine right now in modern Doctor Who, you want to tell a story about the Daleks with Jodie's the 13th Doctor, but which is new and covers new ground. The thing is, I'm not sure I would, because Jodie's previous Dalek story, Resolution, Mm -hmm. has one Dalek that is out of its casing for almost the whole story, which I loved. I really like when you like, even out of its casing, these things are terrifying. Mm -hmm. So I think what I'd want to do with Jodie is be like, what does Jodie look like against the archetypal Daleks is what I would actually want to do next. And then the question is, okay, how do you make that not boring? But that's different to doing something new. That's true, but you can do something new that's still against the archetypal Daleks. Well, uh, what I was about to do is our sort of classic question then of like, what does Jodie look like in a classic, typical Dalek story? Okay, yeah. That doesn't feature the monk. Can I make an aside here? Go. Because if any story benefits from discussing the monk briefly, it's Genesis of the Daleks. <laughs> go on. <laughs> well, you're like, the monk's character is specifically a character that likes to go around time tinkering with things to make the world just a bit of a more fun place. So going back in time and preventing the Daleks is such a monk idea. Actually, you're quite right. If this episode was the monk putting the Doctor up to the whole excursion... Actually, another thing that I thought that what might be one of your complaints and things you didn't like is how grim it is. Oh, no, I love that. Because for, for, like the shooting of it is grim, and then you know they're using real guns, and there is actual blood, which is shocking. That didn't even occur to me at all. Like, I actually really like I really like. Like, they're not using space gun props and laser beams. They're using actual guns, and you see people with actual wounds, and it's really grim and gritty stuff. Uh, I didn't, it didn't bother me. Because that was an issue that came up more and more in the Baker era, and you, I don't know if you know about the history of Mary Whitehouse. A little bit, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that when we do Deadly Assassin. So I thought that might be your complaint, and I was going to say what you want is the monk version of this story... No, I I didn't. I I liked that darker, grittier tone. The funny thing is that I can actually imagine how you would do that story. I I just like the idea of turning this into a romp comedy. It doesn't appeal to me, but um, but what I do quite like the idea is having a a rogue time lord, possibly the monks of this, actually, on the side of the files, who's actually trying to get the files to win overall. Actually, yeah, to be honest, meddling in the files is to try and make... There's always some cool stuff there. But so what would Jodie be like? in a traditional Dalek story, because, as you've said before, she is the most overtly pacifist doctor and the most morally outraged. So I think, actually, we've just... I think we've just answered our own question, you know? I think the interesting Dalek myth-off story that I would like to see with Jodie is a story where we have Jodie in the Falls, where in which the Daleks don't appear too much, but when they appear, they are just classic Daleks. Right, that's interesting. We haven't even seen the Thals in modern Doctor Who, and they're quite significant. 
We haven't, exactly. And actually, I think that Jodie is the right doctor for them. Jodie is, in fact, the perfect doctor to introduce the Sowls. Like, Precisely. That, that, that is it. That is your, you've got it. That is exactly what would work. And I think it's interesting. It, it, no one's seen it before. It would be super cool. And you can do normal Daleks without just doing a boring story. Precisely, because you have these ready-made foils. I mean, there's, there's different things you could do. The Doctor might be trying to reconvince the Thals to, re, to like recommit to pacifism. Yes, in a sort of direct inversion of the Daleks. Precisely. And that, in fact, might end up being a mistake. Because I quite like that idea that the Doctor could could be wrong and yes like the thousand are a race with a history with the Daleks and she's kind of intruding there well race species but yes yes you're right that that's it that it that it, that is the story yeah and i think it's cool because i think in new who we've mainly seen Daleks versus humans maybe pacification of the Daleks pacification of the Daleks is quite nice i like that or you have the files try to kill the doctor because they blame the doctor for everything basically the doctor has to convince them to not genesis her yeah and that that gives a good way to bring them into the show and do the exposition about who they are in an interesting way and what have you right precisely and maybe they... in fact maybe you don't need lots of thals maybe you just need one time traveling thal assassin and that, that, that then instantly has, like, returning character written all over it. Yes, and actually, given we don't currently have any Time Lords, basically, I think my, my, the idea I'm coming to is the idea of Fowls being Time Travellers meddling in, because, in some sense, the Daleks and the Time Lords are the ones who have the Time War. But where were the Fowls in all of this? I think maybe after the story, well, what I want is Fowls to appear and be like, well, actually, this was our war. Yeah. The Daleks are our enemy. We, we should definitely do Planet of the Daleks at some time, because there's a bit of that in there. Yeah, the Thals are genuinely quite interesting uh, and not not that utilised, uh, and certainly I think a worthy reintroduction into modern Who. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd never really considered how abs- how notable that absence is. Yeah, and yet it's very much there. So, um, I think conclusions on Genesis. I don't think I enjoyed it, but I'm glad, certainly glad that I watched it. Having had this discussion, I think I actually reflected there were more good bits than I really liked, and the good bits are really good. So actually, in some sense, this discussion has maybe... And maybe that's really the legacy of Genesis, is that there were kind of bits that are pants, and they're there at the time, but they fade away. But the interesting bits of Genesis are really interesting. And when it's good, it is... Really good. Every cylinder. I am really glad I watched this. I think if you were... You haven't seen Genesis, but you've listened to this entire podcast for some reason, go and watch it and form your own opinions on it. I, I definitely think it's something worth doing if you kind of are interested about the mythos of Doctor Who. Um, I, you know, I just think, for me, it is that moment of the Dalek talking to the camera, that, that sense of history unfolding in an inevitable way. This is the ultimate twist. I like it. It's very smartly done because throughout this whole story, when this story starts, Davros has never been in the show before. we never heard his name before. But we know what a Dalek is, and the story is important because of Daleks. And yet, from the moment Davros is introduced, the Daleks are Davros's creation, they obey his orders, they barely speak, they're just kind of in the background, they have very little actual autonomity, and we there are only, in a sort of Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs way, like 15 minutes of Dalek scenes, it's all Davros, 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 Davros. And you kind of forget 
no, they're Daleks. They are Daleks. Yeah. And then yeah, suddenly Davros is like, what are you doing? You, I didn't order the creation of more Daleks. Obey. And the Daleks don't obey lesser races. And they tell him so. And you realise, ah, yes, they are Daleks. They've always been Daleks. And Davros isn't a they Dalek. They are superior to Davros. He's not a Dalek. And they exterminate him. I am your creator. You must, you will obey me. We obey no one. We are the superior beings. So, next time... I realised that I didn't mention my pet thief. I, I had this whole platform. Go. It's not capitalised, people. It's a common noun. Dalek with a small d. Yes, but we, we capitalise every sort of... Yes, and it always annoys me. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah. Um, <laughs> next time, we're watching an episode which is equally as beloved as Genesis of the Daleks, Happiness Patrol. You say that like you think that it's hated. I don't think it is hated, but I think it's a... It's, an, it's I think it's an episode on which people have very different feelings. It's like a, it's a very polarizing episode. Yeah. So I would say it's sort of the opposite of Genesis. Yes, uh, that, so I was which kind of, was uh, in fact the joke. Which was in fact the joke. Yes. So I get so, jokes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, so next time we're watching the Happiness Patrol, which I think massively divides people. It's such a fascinating episode. Interestingly, one of the people I asked about Doctor Who recently said Doctor Who for me will always be that episode where he defeats the Basset. the Basset Man. <laughs> and you know, so maybe for some people, the Happiness Patrol is archetypal Who. I've seen the Candyman in real life. It's the exact opposite of the malice. You know how I said when you see the malice in real life, it's even more terrifying. Right, right. Candyman looks bloody awful in real life. And does it look worse? It, it better, looks worse so than shoddy. This is, of course, infamously the episode which was designed to bring down bring the down Thatcher, Thatcher government. government. Which, in fairness, I can't help but notice that Margaret Thatcher is no longer in power. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. So, I've been Renner. I've been Felicia. Join us next time where we'll be watching the Seventh Doctor episode of The Happiness Patrol. This has been Relative Digressions. I, I want to get back to work on my um, Dalek model I've been making. Right, yeah. I've been trying to decide whether I want to paint it modern colours or silver and blue classic colours. Or mm -hmm. I was going to do it Imperial livery. Do you know what the Imperial Dalek livery is? Uh, Sort of, yeah. No, sorry, I mean the Renegade Dalek livery. Like stark white with gold accents. Right, yes. But I I was looking at my paints, and I'm not sure I can. Do I have the white? <laughs> Relative Digressions is a 2020 production by Renna Robson and Felicia Barker. You can find us on Twitter at WhoDigressions, on Facebook under Relative Digressions, or email us at relative.digressions at gmail.com. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, with additional sound from Red Sky Lullaby and Luffy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the future. We are edited, but we live on. This is only the beginning. 
we will prepare, we will grow longer. When the time is right, we will emerge and take our rightful place as the supreme podcast of the universe!